Welcome back to Startups, Sparks, and Serendipity. Um, it's Max on this side. Hi, Mike, on the other side. Hey, Max, how are you doing? Very good. Um, I think maybe for everyone that's uh, listening for, for the first time, um, we actually try to look into startups, um, uh, personal development and different areas of personal development, and also uh, serendipitous moments where we just talk about things that we don't didn't even plan or didn't even um, have on our list. And sometimes uh, things appear or occur that we didn't uh, have in mind before. So serendipity is part of the podcast, but we are quite ambitious about startups. And um, today we, we thought about actually digging deeper into one of the more and definitely one of the most successful stories uh, in the startup world coming from the US, uh, which is Airbnb, um, which is more or less quite iconic in its story, but also I think very interesting for everybody that has already founded a company or is willing to found a company uh, quite quite fast or quite soon. Um, so we thought of kind of digging a little bit deeper into the actual story and what we learned about it and uh, what we also can would love to share share with you. Um, but Mike, maybe uh, you actually have met uh, the, one of the two founders uh, personally uh, during your uh, endeavor at, at Y Combinator. Maybe you want to share a couple of couple of words on what your impression was and how that relates now to us kind of talking about the story a little bit. I mean, I've, I've met both Joe and Brian, not for long, and we didn't talk in much detail, but during my time at YC, they spoke and then we spoke for a bit afterwards. I mean, obviously they are pretty cool and some of the best folks out there. And especially, it's especially interesting how vocal they are about specific parts of the industry, right? And most, or many people have heard of the Airbnb founding story. It's one of the most iconic founding stories, I think, of the last decade or so, last decades actually. But I think it's, it's probably very helpful to just dig into it for those who haven't heard it and then also give it a bit of nuance from our side because we wanted to just dig into more founding stories and kind of take the mystery away. Because yeah. for many people who don't really know, or who haven't founded a company themselves or who don't really know many other founders who speak very openly to them, the PR version of the startup story is always very different than the actual story that happened. So it's very nice that for the Airbnb part, the PR story is basically very, very, very close to the actual story, which mm. is a very nice thing, right? It, not everyone does it, but in this case, they actually use it to their advantage. And yeah, why don't you give us the outline of the founding story and then I can give a couple of nuances or side, side comments. Yeah, sure. I, I would even suggest that we kind of potentially go through this in, in a couple of segments, because I think after each segment, there's something interesting to share from our opinion about that specific topic. So uh, actually, a lot of credits for this analysis uh, goes to also the journalist, uh, uh, which is a fantastic newsletter and blog, and they've done an amazing work outlining the success of Airbnb. So uh, big credits to the journalist. We can also recommend it to everyone listening, if you want to get a bit deeper into the startup world, um, they have lots of great content, but uh, we use parts of it, of course, so referencing here. Kind of starting at, 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 at the beginning of the journey, which uh, I found quite fascinating. Um, it was actually Joe who was later on the, the, the chief product officer uh, sending an email to Brian, who was later on the, or at the, more or less from the start already, the, the CEO of, of, of Airbnb. And uh, on to be clear, on September the 22nd in, in the year 2007, Joe wrote an email to Brian um, with more or less the idea 
of making a few bucks by renting out uh, their apartment to to people uh, more or less outside of the town. Um, and I think back then they were in San Francisco and they just wanted to make some money. And they are actually talking about making a few bucks. And that's how this whole initial idea started that actually they were more or less still, I think very early, I think they were not even students anymore. They were just returned, like they were just coming out of university and they were in need for some money and uh, their opportunity to make some money was to potentially rent out their apartment. And I think that's already the first thing we can talk about because at the end, a lot of companies that are being started, I always hear you should ask yourself whether you would be the first user or are you the first more or less user that has the exact same problem like many other people. And if you more or less can solve your own problem, then you can also solve the same problem for many other people. And I feel that especially for the story of them, one writing an email to the other one to rent out the apartment, then I think this is a, a, a great kind of story entry where you feel that this is something that a lot of people, startups should think about. Am I, would I be the first user? Yes or no? What do you think about it? Yeah, I think they have this very interesting angle of, okay, I need to make money. So let's just try this out. And then also they are very honest about the fact that they didn't think it would be a big idea at the beginning. Mm. So they literally didn't want to build a real like high growth startup and IPO at some point. They just tried to earn some money and they wanted to make a business out of it to help other people make some money. That's basically the idea behind it. And if you look at how big Airbnb is nowadays, it just takes a lot of the mystique out of, I need the perfect startup idea out of the equation, right? Because so many different people, actually I had, I had three conversations today with people that I want to potentially hire for my company. And many, like all three of them said at some point they can think about being a founder or maybe they want to be a founder at some point, but they didn't have the right idea yet. And I think that's a very interesting gating mechanism for actually becoming a founder. And the gating mechanism is kind of strengthened by many other founders that talk about their brilliant idea and this moment where they had this like fully fledged out thing that they were super sure would become something very successful. I think it has been changing a bit over the last couple of years that people are a bit more honest about how they actually find ideas. And that it's not always this super analytical, okay, this will be the next Google or whatever idea. And sometimes it's just, I have a problem. I want to solve it. I'll solve it. And sometimes it even, it's even more random. So I totally get that if you don't have the right idea in quotation marks, you think that you can't necessarily become a startup founder. And ideas do matter. I'm very certain that they do. But sometimes you can't really see how good an idea is without actually testing it out. I think that's, that's one of the learnings I take out of this story that sometimes you don't, you, you can't actually analytically derive the actual quality of an idea. Sometimes with hindsight bias, you can, right? But not when you start. And then here's a very interesting quote from the early days where Chesky said something that I mentioned earlier. It's funny, but we didn't think air bed and breakfast that was the name back in the day would be a big idea. We thought it might be able to pay the rent until we could think of the big idea, <laughs> which is a very ironic amazing. thing, right? Yeah, it's amazing. If you look at Airbnb now. Mm -hmm. 
I agree. And, and I, I think one thing that is related to that is that um, also, I believe, and I just had a conversation with a friend of mine today, actually, about it, where we thought about the the whole initiative of actually talking about vision and mission when launching startups and when launching products in general. And a lot of people get stuck into what's my vision, what's my mission of the company, and they haven't even they haven't even actually sold sold it to one customer or actually one one user. Uh, so there's no traction at all, and and companies start thinking about a vision and a mission right from the early start. Which I also think Airbnb didn't think about this specific topic at all. They just thought about a problem they wanted to solve it and they wanted to solve it for themselves at the beginning and there was no vision mission anything else related to that involved especially in the early process which i think is an additional point that kind of comes out of the story maybe more passively but i think it's part of it yeah there are actually a couple of people that i can't name because i don't know if that's public but i i do know some very successful founders like 100 million dollar plus valuations in san francisco that literally told me to the face that they themselves, sometimes it was a CEO, sometimes a CTO thought their idea sucked at the beginning and they only did it because they didn't have any other ideas or sometimes the co-founders thought it was a good idea. So there are literally many, many people out there who did an idea that they initially thought might be maybe the way towards a good idea or maybe not even that good, but they just wanted to try it out. And yeah, let, let's continue with the Airbnb story. So the, the guys had this idea, Joe sent an email to Brian, and then they recruited an old friend of them, right? Nathan, who mm -hmm. was more of the like technical uh, person uh, behind the whole, the whole company. And so the, the interesting thing then is they focused on events, right? Their, their initial idea was there was this design conference or like some kind of conference. Yeah, here, the Designer Society of America conference mm -hmm. uh, coming to San Francisco in 2007. The hotels were overwhelmed and they continue to focus on ideas like this, like conferences where a lot of people come to a city, no one can get a hotel. So they did the same for South by Southwest and they had a big success because two people booked through Airbnb. However, one of them was Brian Chesky. So <laughs> he was just using the platform himself. And so basically, at first, the real funny thing is they literally required their hosts, so the people who host other people, to have an air bed. So it needed to be like an air mattress. And at some point, they felt that might be a bit limiting. So they also wanted to relax that restriction at some point and then open up the platform for people that have couches or real beds or whatever. Mm. And then they made a couple of uh, decisions that were very important, uh, three. And then I think we can take a cut and talk about it for, for a second. One, uh, they wanted to facilitate the payments on the platform. So at first they were just sending guests to PayPal or other websites. And then at this point, they wanted to do the payments themselves. And that was in 2008, right? That was before Stripe. So it wasn't necessarily the norm that people would pay on websites. They were often sent to other websites, but they wanted to control the whole payment flow, which in hindsight was very important. Then two, they introduced ratings, 
which means that people could actually rate the hosts, but also the, the people who used it as a service, which was one of the most important factors for people actually trusting to go into a private apartment because that was the biggest problem at first, right? Trust, they were always talking about trust, trust, trust. And many investors, many people actually in the early days of Airbnb said, I would never do that. I wouldn't trust mm. a random person to get into my home or I wouldn't trust to just sleep at a random person's uh, house. Mm. And then the last thing is uh, something they called three-click booking. So they just wanted to make it extremely easy and extremely quick to use the product with very minimal friction. And yeah, so let's take a, a quick cut mm -hmm. here. So they, they started the company, they changed some things, but at first not really many people were using it, right? So South by Southwest, two people booking it, doesn't sound like the biggest success story ever, but they persevered, right? They continued to actually keep working on this. And I think there's also like a different side of the story, at least to me, that sometimes it just takes some time for things to actually work mm. and it doesn't really take off at the beginning. But then on the other side, some people, like some companies just don't take off because there's no product market fit, right? So how do you actually know whether you just have to wait or whether this is just not a good idea? Yeah, I mean, like... Uh, It's a good good question, right? I think waiting itself is not going to make the problem better. I think it's uh, definitely about kind of iterating and trying to better understand how to reach product market fit. And there are different dimensions to it. And um, kind of finding finding your way until you reach product market fit is probably most important. And I think waiting itself shouldn't solve the problem. But what I think also looking at From, a, from my product view, more or less, and, and since I'm quite passionate about that topic, what I love about this is that they actually focused on three major um, three major functionalities that they integrate within the product that is very, let's say, that is very new on the market and that gives them or the user more or less a delighted feeling compared to other services that are out there. And actually, this reminds me a lot to a framework which I've also used in the past quite often and more and more now at the moment, actually, it's it's called the Kano model, where you more or less break down different functionalities into, into different segments. Um, one of them is more or less just like basic functionalities where um, you compare your functionalities to the market and you say there's not really a big, um, like it's there's a standard out there. And if you don't have that standard functionality, then Uh, you 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 can't even launch right because other other competitors uh, more or less have the same functionality and then you have performance functionalities which are more related to speed and how fast users can actually use your product that's related to the three click booking part that their process of actually moving from a person being interested in uh, in in finding an apartment to actually booking it is very very fast um, reminds me a lot to the performance part of the Kano model and then lastly I think that's related especially to the to the first and to the second point facilitating payments on platform and also introducing ratings it's about delighters uh, they have specifically found functionalities within the product that make their self, uh, make the product much more delightful than the competition. And they did something that the competition didn't have at this point because other people use PayPal, other people use maybe manual services and they just introduced their own payment to make the whole three click booking experience much, much faster. And I think this was a genius move back then um, because they have really identified what's our core functionality that makes us a little bit better than the competition. And what do we actually different also to traditional 
um, hotel platforms that don't actually have any ratings from an end user perspective. And I think the, the product decision that they made was very smart on that, that perspective. Yeah, I agree. And then the, the story continues, right? So they wanted to raise... <laughs> yeah, investors, investors. It's, it's always a funny story in hindsight if you think about how much money people would have earned if they invested in Airbnb early on, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that you don't necessarily want to have in your anti-portfolio of companies you haven't invested in. Nope. But that's similar also to, the life... Similar to, similar to Tesla uh, uh, half a year ago. <laughs> Actually on a very different level than Tesla half yeah, a year ago. Right, yeah. Because you would literally become like a millionaire or a billionaire depending on how much you invest just by investing in this one opportunity. <laughs> right. But yeah. Uh, so basically they were trying to pitch angel investors we were trying to raise 150K at a $1.5 million valuation. This means you would get 10% of freaking Airbnb, 10% of Airbnb for 150K. <laughs> so, and at a 1.5 million valuation, that's insane. I mean, back then, the fundraising market was very different, right? Mm. So mm. valuations were different as well. Fundraising yep. amounts were different, but still, no one invested. He, he said they were introduced to 15 angel investors. Eight replied. Of those, four said no, it didn't fit their thesis. One said they didn't like the market and three just passed and the others never replied. So <laughs> what, what, does, what does that tell us about investors, Max? Or raising money early. That's actually one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I also went through this a little bit and it was, uh, it's always very, very difficult. Um, I think uh, probably the only thing that helps you raise faster, and I've seen this more and more so in episodes I did back then with my podcast, is that the only thing that helps you really is traction, but they didn't even have traction. So they were more or less raising on no traction, um, a market that has been not really seen, um, nothing that is more or less hyped, such as, uh, e-commerce late on or like SaaS now so I think it's just like they tried to race for something that was not there so I think um, investors were of course quite unsure about it but I think the interesting learning out of it is that they not just said okay the investors say no so we also say no to the business model and, and stop doing what we do they actually found alternative ways but I would be interested to know before we dig into the alternative ways of getting money, um, what do you think about it? Because we've also kind of gone through the process of, of raising and, and everything that's related to that. Yeah, so, so I think very early on, like in the earliest days of your startups, you can raise money through three different things. I mean, obviously it's more complicated, but I like to simplify it at least for the purpose of this episode. And then we can, maybe we do a fundraising episode, like early stage fundraising episode at some point with myself, maybe one or two of our buddies. So basically three ways. One, you have traction. Traction is the easiest way of raising money. If you have traction, raising money is very, very easy. So what you should focus on as a startup founder is traction or like product market fit, depends, right? But product market and traction go into the same direction and are usually to, to some degree at least intertwined. So secondly, you need to know the right people and they need to trust and respect you. That's also very helpful because then you don't need that much traction. You just need the right network and these people also need to believe in you. Or lastly, 
it can also be based on a really, really insane idea with a lot of promise. So sometimes ideas and just something unique are enough if you have the right team, then you don't necessarily need traction and you also don't necessarily need to know the people very well. If you have a great idea with a great team, then you can also raise money in the early days. So the problem for them was that one, they didn't have traction. Two, apparently they didn't know people that would just give them money based on the fact that they were building the company. And then three, the idea seemed very stupid for many people at, mm. at first glance, right? So not the easiest way of finding investors, but then they found some other way. So why don't you just talk a bit about how they persevered and what happened afterwards? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for sharing. Actually, great input. Um, I, I think that the the upcoming story is probably one of the most hilarious I've ever heard, kind of raising uh, or getting your first money to finance all your stuff within the startup. Um, as far as I know, yeah, like Brian Chesky and, and Joe Gabby are the ones that we talked about early on are were more or less designers. Um, I think Joe actually studied uh, uh, design. I'm not sure about I think they met at design school. Oh, they met at design school. Okay. I think, yeah, um, I think that's where they met. Okay. Interesting. I, I, and, 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 and both of them of course had some design skills and, and during um, uh, when they were in that situation that more or less all the investors said no, um, they asked themselves the question of how can we get the first money in uh, to just kind of finance our own stuff. And um, during that same time, uh, US elections were going on uh, between uh, back then Obama and McCain. Um, that were more or less already debating and they had the usual stuff that we've also seen a couple of months ago. And interestingly enough, what they did is they more or less created um, a serial, um, more or less say they got the serial, but they, they mainly focused on the design of the serial. And they had one serial, which was blue and had a funny cartoon version of, of Barack Obama on it. And they had another serial, serial um, that that was more or less, I think, red, red or orange, and and had McCain on it in a in a very cartoonish cartoonish way, um, and they sold them, I think, for forty dollars, um, um, yeah, for forty dollars each, um, and that actually made them a thirty k at the end, and also enabled them to more or less keep the lights on, but also enabled them to just keep running and 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 keep iterating on the product and 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 gain some new users and actually learn how to reach product market fit faster. But it was, I think the generalist called it uh, Airbnb survival hack, which very much uh, fits into, I think, what the whole purpose of this was to sell a cereal for $40 a box, uh, a box because it was mainly just nicely designed and got the attraction because of the whole US election. And it reminded me again, back to them focusing on events, they had this one um, thing that they focus on from, from a marketing perspective, back then it was events, now it was uh, the US election, and they use that for their advantage to get money or to get the first users, and in this specific case, of course, to get money. So I thought it was a magical move that I think a lot of people don't do, and it reminds me a bit on the Paul Graham article, do things that don't scale in this regard to actually making money and getting your first money instead of looking for angel investors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very weird, right? Because what you actually want to do as a founder is focus on the company and find product market fit and talk to customers. But on the other hand, the company will die if you don't get money in because you need to pay for a couple of things and you also need to survive, right? If you don't have a lot of money yourself, you need to pay for rent and other expenses. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of 
actually like people that I know of that are doing consulting at first in some way, shape or form, and then transition to actually mm. like wanting to sell a product or like building a startup. And I think it's a very dangerous path, right? Because with consulting, you can make money very quickly and you could probably, if you are good at what you're actually doing, like the, the subject matter expertise that you have, you can sell it for like a decent price. You can become profitable as a company, but translating that into an actually scalable product is very difficult because you always have the dichotomy on the one side, you have a business that actually makes money mm. like the consulting part. And then on the other side, you have this business that doesn't make any money and where you don't even know if people actually want it. Mm -hmm. So I know many people that actually just end up building a consultancy or an agency or whatever, instead of actually building a startup. And where there's nothing wrong with building an agency or a consultancy, right? They make more money than most startups, <laughs> at least if you look That's at true. it, yeah. if you look at it on uh, like a, a median basis, if you look at it mm -hmm. on an average basis, then probably not anymore. It depends. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so what I don't want to say, I think it's a slippery slope and you have to be very careful, but obviously it's better than letting the company die. On the other hand, sometimes you have to let the company die, right? You, you can't keep it afloat forever with hacks, etc. But let's not take away anything from the story. I think the moral of this story is they did a great job. They, they kept the company afloat with some very like crazy marketing ploy. Mm -hmm. And... It also helped them with actually making the next steps, right? This, this open opportunities for them. Because when they actually applied to YC, Paul Graham heard about the story and just laughed the story. He said, when you can sell breakfast cereal to people and make 30K out of it, you can, or you might be able to convince people to rent airbags, right? So for him, and for other investors, potentially, that was just showing how resilient these people are and that they have the ability to create stuff that's actually being sold on the market. And getting into IC was obviously the big break they needed, and it was paving the way for a lot of future success for them, specifically. And for YC. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, YC benefited a lot from them as well, yeah. right? They are among the biggest companies. I think they're number one on the top companies list that YC just published. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's Airbnb, DoorDash, then Stripe. Mm -hmm. uh, off the top of my head, I can look it up. No, but yeah, I, I, so basically, moral of the story is they survived. They got into YC and then the, the real journey actually started. Right. And I think we can cover the venture story a little bit. And, and there's much more that we can cover in future episodes. But I think... Um, Two things before we do that. I mean, one part that we can cover very shortly, but um, they definitely better, like coming back to what we said earlier regarding the, like related to the do things that don't scale methodology or, or blog article of Paul Graham. They really try to figure out what can we do that doesn't scale at this point in time. So that is not really um, doable for hundreds and thousands of users. But what they came up with is they understood that a lot of users on the platform they they post pictures from their apartments that are very shitty and are not really nice to look at so a lot of people apparently didn't book certain um apartments because they also didn't like the pictures and were not really um 
more or less emotionally uh, attracted to to the apartment they they actually would need to sleep in right so what they came up with is that they hired professional photographers to shoot pictures of all the different listings that were on um, Airbnb at that point in time in New York City to make them more appealing of course for the people that actually host them but also make the pictures more appealing to the potential guests that will try to find these apartments and this was apparently a big move I, I think I, I remember that um, Brian Chesky or Joe Gabia said that they were so surprised that it worked because instead of making 200 bucks they made 400 bucks and they were so amazed by it that they made 200 bucks more uh, that it apparently has had more or less a good consequence and, and secondly um, uh, Brian Chesky actually traveled to all the different cities that had Airbnb apartments and he stayed in these Airbnb listings to really understand what the product and the experience of Airbnb would look like and, and what they can. And also to them. talk to the hosts, right? And figure out right. how they think about it. Right. Which, I mean, it was a marketplace. Uh, so you, of course, have these two users. Um, so I think that was uh, also, again, like coming back to the principles of, of building products, this came back again very nicely into how you build products. And I'm sure YC uh, gave them a good hint, but really be close to the user, but also understand how you can make your experience better while actually adding functionalities. I think that's something that they really understood quite early on and, and I'm sure YC helped, but I, I love the fact that they used very manual approaches to that to really understand what they need to improve. Yeah, do things that don't scale. One of the things you learn at YC, or at least they try to teach you. And we, we definitely got some good advice out of that as well at YC. I think, to be honest, Airbnb couldn't have been built by people who didn't have a design background. I think a lot of things you see that Airbnb did, I mean, it could have obviously been built, but I think like you, you just see that Airbnb was founded by two people with a design background. And That's a good point. The design, good point. like for those, for those who don't really know too much about design, design is not just visual design directly. Mm -hmm. Design is a lot about thinking and a lot about how to approach problems, how to think about things in frameworks and how to make things that actually work. I think that's like a very short, crisp definition of how at least some designers told me that they were thinking about it. Because design has this, like if you think about design, most people just think of like graphic design, web design, but not necessarily mm -hmm. of how to design a chair so that you can sit on the chair and that mm -hmm. it doesn't break. And then you can also design processes, right? You can design a lot of things. And I think design philosophy is very, very important in product development, as, as you know very well. Yeah, and uh, you can even design organizations, right? It's not just a fancy word anymore, organizational design. It's actually something that you can study uh, all over um, and, 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 and for quite a long time. So organizational design is, is also really related to that, making an organization work um, in all its processes and structures, etc. Yeah, and be before we end the Airbnb story for the day, I want to mention one thing that I really like to mention a lot. Joe Gebbia has done one of the most insane transformations in terms of look than anyone I know. Uh, really? You can Google, yeah, you can, <laughs> like, I, I can, like, I can promise you, I'll, I'll show you afterwards. But if you Google, um, I think you can Google Airbnb founding team or something like that. And then you see, do you find an old picture of Joe Gebbia where, like, all the three of them stand there and then you see oh, Joe yeah. Gebbia. And then, yeah, do, do you see the picture? And then yeah, Google the Joe Gebbia now and just look at the difference. It's insane. 
Yeah, he looks. It's it's crazy. Yeah, but he didn't look like a designer back then either. So um, yeah, he looks like a typical typical Silicon Valley like nerd, right? Not yeah, in a, not true. necessarily not even in a bad way, but just like the way he transformed his looks is just insane to me, and gives me hope for my thirties. Yeah, it's it's a good point. Uh, wow, I'm I'm impressed. I didn't I never I never saw that picture. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, I always <laughs> use it as an, I always use it as a as an explanation that actually having money or access to resources and people that can help you with your looks can make a very big difference. Or maybe and, uh, it's also yeah. the hypothesis that if you have a successful startup, you just automatically uh, uh, look nicer. I don't know, Mike. You you have you have done some transformation. <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. I mean, if I, I promise you, when I'm ever on the Joe Gabriel level of success, that I'll definitely make a very good transformation. So <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll promise you that. And until then, I'll just try Fantastic. to not make a, a, like a, a downwards plummet. So I'll just try to keep. <laughs> I just try to keep the current level as long as I can. <laughs> you're you're on a you're on a good path. Uh, I'm happy to exchange. No one one thing to cover. I mean, before we before we end this, I think there's nothing really to add. But I think um, the main points were covered. But I think interestingly, what happened afterwards is is just amazing, right? To see pre-seed they raised money from YC, 20k at that point in time, and then in Mollis all started and not just from a financial financing perspective, but also from a user perspective, of course, but looking at the finances, they raised 600 K in seed, which was also not like compared to today, it's also not a lot, but uh, raised 7.2 million in series a ended up ended up from actually Sequire uh, and Greylock, which was uh, qu quite a, quite, of course, quite some names at, at, at that early stage. And then series B, Andreessen Horowitz came in and then it more or less kept going until um, they are more or less public now, of course, but it, it crossed the billion mark in, in, in Series E from kind of different investors. So I think you have really seen how more or less the whole story of the, these two founders or back later than three founders, they were very stuck in more or less solving their own problem and it, it ended up through like different stages and ups and downs to now going to be a public company um, and, and many more experiences that are added and will be added and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they raised more money than the valuation of most of the actual like very valuable startups, right? They raised $4.4 billion in equity before they went public, which yeah. is a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> but also there's, there's, I'm very big believer in the fact that Airbnb were like, Airbnb's share price will continue to rise because I just think they they have a very unique position mm. on the market. And it I already agree. rose quite a bit, right? I agree. I agree. And they want to apparently want to add additional experiences to the platform. So it's not just a marketplace for um, for for apartments anymore, right? So it, many more things got added, but I think we can cover that in future episodes or potentially with the author of, of the generalist uh, blog. Um, anything to add from your side, Mike? Um, but I think we have. I mean, we could talk about it for hours, but I think for now, I think just to conclude, what we wanted to show is not necessarily only the story of Airbnb, but just mm -hmm. a couple of learnings that you can take out of it. And we also wanted to contextualize how messy the early days of startups usually are. And I think that's very important for many people to know because some people are surprised by it before they found their own company. And it's, it's not always as glorious as it looks from the outside. Also, the funny thing is, even for the successful companies, it's often not as glorious mm -hmm. in the early days. 
So I think that's a very important learning. And we'll, we'll do some more startup back, uh, background stories and we'll try to get some founders on board who can honestly talk about the early days of the company, which is usually companies that have been around for a bit because then it just doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we should aim for that or, or companies that have already exited or something like that. So we, we, we will get a couple of people on board that can talk about that at some point. Cool. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Uh, much appreciated it. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon again. Yeah, but before we, before we go, I have, as always, a quote and a book recommendation. I knew it. So, yeah, you won't, you won't, get, you won't get off before you, before you get both. So the book recommendation I have for today is a book called On Writing Well. And it's a book, as the name suggests, that explains how to write nonfiction in the best way possible. So it just gives you advice on how to become a better writer, what you should pay attention to. And it's a very, very good book. It was recommended to me by one of my co-founders. I've read parts of it before and recently bought it again because I will write more content this year. And I think writing is just one of these skills that levers into so many other skills. You can, if you're a good writer, you can write better emails. You can write better press releases. You can write blog articles. You can write, writing is just so important to amplify your own voice. And yeah, I think it's, it's a very good book. It's not the only book you should read on writing, but I think it's definitely a very good book. Nice. Thanks for sharing. I, I also need that. <laughs> yeah, I can, I, I can recommend a couple of, of other things. I, I think the next couple of weeks, I'll just suggest a couple of pieces of content that I find on good writing, because it's something that I'm currently diving a bit deeper again after like having neglected my medium blog for quite some time, despite it, it actually had quite like at least a bit of success early. And then I just didn't write anymore and I want to do it again because it's a lot of fun and it opens a lot of opportunities. And the last thing is uh, before I, I, I I send you off is a quote. And the quote is from David Perel, who's actually a good writer. Mm, and yeah. do you know him? Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's, he's great. And he also has content on writing, but that's, that's not necessarily what I want to focus on. But the quote is, creatives have two masters, the art and the medium. Only serve the art and you won't find an audience. Only serve the medium and your work will lose its soul. It's the dance between them that makes a successful creative. And I think that's so Mm. important because your content can be insanely good, but if no one finds it and no one has access to it, no one will ever know. And it's the same with writing, podcasting, Mm. sculpture, like making sculptures, painting, whatever. But then also there are a lot of people that that are very good at distribution and that have good mediums, but they don't produce great content, Mm -hmm. right? So it's the mix of both that actually makes a really successful creative do their best work, best work in the sense that also many people can actually access it, right? So I I really like this quote because I know so many people who produce great content who just don't have the audience they deserve. Mm -hmm. And then there are lots of people who maybe know how to manipulate manipulate the medium, but don't really have the best content. Mm -hmm. It's so valuable and relates to all 
different mediums, building products or building startups, you need distribution and a good product, both, uh, not just one side. Um, can relate to that a lot. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to close it off for the day. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Max.